Welcome, everybody, to episode number 23 of the Average Jake Firefighter podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Owens, from the Average Jake Firefighter blog. Before we get started with today's podcast, which to me is a very important topic, talking about engine company search, uh, I just want a quick apology to everybody. I usually try to put two podcasts out a month, but sometimes things don't always work out that way. Uh, sometimes life gets in the way, and I know everybody understands that. My kids have been doing a ton of wrestling and a ton of sports here lately, and I just haven't had time to sit down and do a podcast. Uh, plus, I only like to do topics or create content about stuff that I am passionate about and care about. I don't want you to take 30 minutes or an hour of your day and not feel that it was worthwhile if you popped me into your earbuds or on your ride to work or or on your ride home from work. So, uh, you know, you can rest assured that I'm not going to put out stuff that I think is garbage, right? Uh, I've put out some podcasts that I thought were really great, and I've put out some that I thought weren't as great, but nothing would that would be a waste of your time. So you can rest assured that when you click play on this podcast, it's not going to be things that are waste your time. Uh, I've recorded several that I've deleted because I didn't think they were very good. So you can rest assured that if I publish it, I at least think it's worth your time to listen to. Uh, with that being said, speaking of wrestling, like my kids have been doing a ton of wrestling uh, just recently as this past couple days, uh, my youngest son had won the Virginia State Freestyle Wrestling Championship, so that was really cool. My oldest son has really stepped out of its comfort zone. Uh, if you looked on my Instagram uh, you'll see my oldest son uh, working out three days a week. Uh, he's been hitting the tire with a sledgehammer, and he has only ever wrestled because it was just something that he just kind of did. Like, you know, my youngest son was more into it, and, you know, he would just wrestle because he had to go sit in the gym all day, so he might as well wrestle. Um, that was kind of his mindset, but he's really started to step outside of his comfort zone and really start to grow as a wrestler. Uh, and he competed in freestyle wrestling this, uh, this past weekend. And it was really, really great to see. Uh, the results weren't exactly what he was looking for, but hey, you know he's got a long learning curve to to keep going. And but he's got nothing but ability to get there. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. And I showed him this video because if anybody who's ever heard me talk know that like there's been basically two parts of my life: uh, the wrestling part and the athlete part, and then the firefighter. Uh, and wrestling was always a very big and big thing in my life. It still is. My kids wrestle. I coach youth wrestling. Wrestling is a big deal to me. Uh, and so I was watching this weekend as well the U.S. Open Freestyle and Greco uh, Championships. And this is, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, for the people that aren't wrestlers out there, uh, this is part of the process to make it to the world freestyle team to go win world championships. And then the following year in 2020, they'll do all of these things in order to get to the Olympic trials and make the Olympic team. So this is kind of like the road to uh, making the Olympics and, and being able to compete for, for medals and represent our country in the sport of wrestling. So long story short, there's a wrestler who wrestles for Cornell named Yanni Diakamahalis. Uh, I know it's a ton of consonants and vowels, uh, but Yanni Diakamahalis is a wrestler for Cornell University. And he is a two-time NCAA Division I champion, and he has two years of college eligibility left. And this past weekend, he won the U.S. Open Freestyle Championship, uh, which means he's probably going to end up taking an Olympic redshirt in 2020 to try to make the Olympic team. This was kind of a, a to-see-where-he-was-at type deal, and he is just a phenomenal athlete. But it's what he said after the victory 
that really was impactful, and I made sure I showed it to my kids, and I think it's impactful even for us in the fire service. Uh, after it, he said that the things that you feel are so far away are usually right in front of you. That when he was 17 years old, the U.S. Open Freestyle Tournament seemed so far away that it was almost too, that it almost didn't seem like worth worrying about. But he said that every day from the time he's grown, like the time he was little, all the way to now has mattered. Everything that he's done from that point mattered. Every day mattered to get him there. And he even said, you don't have to train every day, but you do have to do something that makes you better every day. I think that's highly impactful for us in the fire service. You know, and I talk about this with my three hours, right? Like, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time for us to, to, to do those three hours, but maybe you do need to take a break. We all need to take breaks. We all have lives, you know, we have lives outside of the fire service. And maybe you do need to take a break from doing the hands-on training because that stuff can wear and tear on your body. But does that mean you can't sit down and read? Does that mean you can't get on YouTube and practice your size-ups? Does that mean that you just have to sit there in the recliner all day? Do something impactful because every day does matter. There's a, the one big difference between sports and what we do. There's a lot of there's a lot of comparison, but the one big difference is that they know the date of competition. They knew, you know, Yanni Diakamahalas and anybody that wanted to wrestle in the United States Open Freestyle and Greco tournament knew when that date was, and so they knew how much time they had and how much training that they're going to have to do to get there. We don't. We do not know the date that all of our preparation is going to become is going to be called to the front and that we're going to have to do what it is that we've trained to do. So even more so in the fire service, every day matters. Don't go a day without doing something to make yourself better. That day matters. And guess what, folks? We only have a finite number of days. There's only 365 of them in a year. And I know that sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, it is not. And we only have a finite amount of time on this planet and a finite amount of time in the fire service. Most fire service careers are only 25 to 30 years. And a lot of people are leaving at 20 years these days. A lot of people are leaving at 20 years these days. 20 years out of 80, 90, 100 years is nothing. It's nothing. If you live to be 100, 20 years of your life is not even a quarter of it. Not even a quarter. So you just have to think about those things. Let's make the most of our time. Let's make the most of our days. Again, I know people get sore. People get injured. If you're out on an injury, you know, your shoulder's all busted up, then you should be working on your mind. Watch YouTube videos. Read fire service articles. Read leadership books. Do all those things that you can do with what you have been given. Yeah, I know everybody's you know gets sore. Well, scale down your workout, but go out there and do something anyway. You don't have to kill it every time. Just go out there and move, do something, or stretch. Flexibility and mobility are just as important. Make the days count. Make the days in the fire service count. Because we don't know when 
our number is coming and we're going to have to perform. And every time we go out the door to perform, we have life in our hands. Either the citizen or the people that are responding with us. So don't waste your time. Even if you don't go stretch hose today, which I think we should stretch hose a lot more than what we do, but even if you don't go stretch hose today, pick up that fire engineering magazine. Pick up that firehouse magazine. Get online and look at uh, the Art of Firemanship journal. Look at County Fire Tactics. Go on Facebook. Well, I'm not a big Facebook guy, but go on Facebook and look at Engine Company Resurrection, uh, Kyle Romagus's page. Pop in a podcast. There's a ton of information you can get out of podcasts, and there's a ton of people creating great content. Pete Lamb, Steve Green, Cody and Steven at the Do Work podcast. Um... Trial by Fire, Brothers in Battle, uh, Fit to Fight Fire, uh, Thin Thin Red Line Radio, Pin the Q Podcast, National Fire Radio, Jump Seat Radio. All of these things that you literally don't have to do anything but pop them in your headphones or your earbuds or whatever you're using in your, your ride to work or on the treadmill and listen. And you can get so much information out of it. So make your days useful, don't waste them because there's only so many of them that we get. And we want to make sure that we're making an impact on those days. So that's all I had for the intro. Stay tuned for some great discussion on engine company search and why I think it's something that we should all be doing. We should all be creating a plan and we should all be implementing that no matter the size of our fire department. Hey everybody, welcome back. Thanks for uh, coming back after the intro. So today's topic we're going to talk about is engine company search. Uh, I've written a couple articles about that, and I felt that a podcast might uh, be appropriate for it as well. So what I'm going to talk about is some background on why I feel like this is important and some specific incidents that I experienced in my fire service career on why I really started to focus on this, and then uh, just go into some of the procedures and how you can prepare yourself for engine company search. Because it's not something that we're going to be able to do if we're not ready and we haven't practiced it, just like everything else we do in the fire service. If you don't, uh, you know, just the other day on shift, me and uh, the rookie on one of the other shifts, because again, I'm a station captain, so I end up working with all three A, B, and C shift. Uh, and there's a rookie on C shift. And just the other day, me and him were out there tying knots and, you know, it was, if you haven't tied a knot in a long time, it's, it's a struggle to remember how to tie it again, you know? So if you don't use it, you lose it. And if we don't prepare for it, uh, you're not going to be able to do it when it comes time to execute it on the real deal. So let's talk about engine company search. First, like I said, a little bit of background. I had, I, I, and, if, and maybe I always knew this, right? But it starts all the way back again when I first started learning firefighting uh, at 15, 16 years old, going through Firefighter 1 and all that stuff. Search and Rescue was taught as a truck company function. You know, truck companies do search and rescue. And I was lucky. I came from a pretty large volunteer fire department. And in my, in my fire department that I volunteered with, we had two engines, a ladder truck, and a heavy rescue. Uh, we called it a squad at the time, and now they're, now they're calling it a rescue. But I digress. It was always kind of a heavy rescue to me. Uh, we, we, I had all of those things 
in the station that I volunteered in. So I got exposed right away to a lot of fire service disciplines, engine company, truck company, rescue company. Uh, the only thing we didn't have was an ambulance. Uh, and now that station does have an ambulance. So I got exposed and I was lucky to get exposed to all of those things right at a very, very young age. So even going through my initial firefighting training, and then, you know, of course, even in my career firefighting training, it was search and rescue is a truck company or special service company. That's what we tend to call them in the fire department that I work for. We call them special service companies, and that's referring to ladder companies and rescue companies. And I've been assigned to ladder companies. I've been assigned to rescue companies. I was actually, uh, before I got promoted to captain, I was a lieutenant on a rescue company. So I've had, again, had exposure to a lot of those things uh, in my fire service career. And it's always been search, 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 search and rescue. Rescue companies especially. Rescue companies are designed to specifically, you know, initially to rescue people, specifically firemen. But then, you know, their mission has expanded over the years to just basically rescue anybody in any situation. So that was always preached as a rescue, as a, as a special service company skill. I mean, even back in my young days uh, when I first came on to my current fire department, we always talked about it. I was like, no, nah, man, I've got the nozzle. That is my tool. I don't need to bring another tool with me because I've got the nozzle. The nozzle is my tool. The guys on the ladder truck can bring uh, the, the irons and the hooks and all of those things. And I was, and I'll admit, I was extremely spoiled because when I first my first station assignment in the fire department that I work for now, I was at a uh, company where it had an engine, a ladder, and a uh, and a medic unit. So if we simultaneously arrived, engine and ladder right next to each other, yeah, I never had to worry about bringing the irons because I knew the guys on the ladder truck were going to bring them. So I didn't have to worry about forcing the door. I didn't have to worry about doing any stuff. I didn't have to worry about searching. My job was to stretch the line to the front door. They open it. I go in. I put the fire out. They search. I'm not worried about it. And so I, it kind of like got pushed into the back of my brain that nah, I don't need to worry about that. And then you, then, you know, I got transferred, of course, to a single engine house where there's nobody in this thing except the three guys that are riding the engine. And you start to get into situations where you run away from help. Uh, and you get into situations where you, you, your, your, your ladder company response and your special service company response are you know, a couple minutes behind. And now you're like, wow, I need to start thinking about what do I do if I find somebody? So, and that brings me to two specific incidents, uh, both both when I became a company officer that led me to really, really focus on this. The first one, I was an engine company lieutenant in the west end of my county. And we had sent our third person, so we ride with three. I don't know if it, how many. If you're if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I work for a pretty large suburban fire department in Virginia. We're the second largest in terms of number, uh, in terms of number in the state of Virginia. Fairfax being the first, uh, the, the biggest. Uh, but we ride with three on every suppression piece: three people in the engine, three people on our truck companies, and three people on our rescue companies. On our ambulances, we, cross, we, we will cross-staff the ambulance. I say cross-staff. Uh, our ambulances, are right, we ride them with two, uh, and they're both, they're both firefighters, and one of them's an ALS provider, which we allow intermediates to practice ALS and paramedics, and then the other one is a BLS provider, an EMT basic. But they have air packs. They have uh, you know, a water can, a set of irons on the ambulance. We call them fire medic units. 
uh, because they're not just an ambulance. They can go into firefighting action if they need to. So this fire, we, the call before that, we had run a critical EMS call and we sent our third person to the hospital with the ambulance. That's a pretty common thing in my fire department. Like if we, we tend to do that and we'll ride and we'll drop that engine company down to two people for the 10, 15 minutes that it's going to take for either one of the command team members or the EMS supervisor or us to just go pick them up from the hospital. On this day, the, uh, it was a short run to, to the hospital. It was pretty close. We didn't think she, uh, the, we didn't think they were going to be gone that long. So we ended up just going back to the fire station, the engine driver and myself just waiting. And I was lucky at this point though, because I was in a station where I had, again, a, a multi-company station, a rescue company, an engine company, and an ambulance running out of the same house. And so we're waiting for the ambulance to come back and boom, we catch the run. We catch the fire comes out as a fire, smoke and fire visible from the initial call, make the right turn onto the main road that the fire station's on, and you can see the column of smoke. So we know that it's a fire. Immediately knowing that we're riding with two people, I uh, radio uh, our dispatcher and tell him that we're going to need to add an additional engine to the call because we're only riding with two people. So as we start to go up the road, uh, look at the map, find a hydrant, communicate that to the driver, all well and good, things are going smooth, except there's only one of us, get there, and sure enough, got a working fire, not only do we have a working fire, there's a car in the backyard, and it looks like, it doesn't look like one of those cars that's up on blocks, it looks like a car where the guy, he just, that's where he parks his car, the person who lives there, so immediately get out, the rescue company, thankfully, was in quarters, they're right behind me, uh, so they're three guys, driver, officer, and firefighter get out. As I'm doing the 360, I radio to them for one of them to pull a line to the front door as they're walking up. Uh, see the car in the driveway or in the back of the house. Don't have any occupant accountability out front. One person who called it in was like, hey, yeah, I know that the guy, I saw the guy get home a little bit ago, so we think there's somebody in this house. So now we're in a position where I'm, I may have to find and search this, you know, I may have to search for this guy and I'm alone. Additionally, on the way there, there was no ladder company assigned to the call because our ladder company was on a reserve. We didn't have all of our reserve ladders were out of service at the time. So our ladder company that was coming to that call was on a reserve engine, basically just a people carrier. (coughs) So... We didn't have a ladder company. Granted, we did have a rescue company, but now we're basically going into this thing where we normally have six people and we're reduced to five. One of them's got to pump the engine, so really the interior crew that's going into this fire is three people. And we, so, you know, that's a big deal, right? Like, that's reducing that, that staffing by one person is a big deal. So we're having to multitask. We're having to go in and do both jobs. So they get a line to me mask up, I'm on the nozzle and trying to radio all the other details, start flowing water, kind of flowing and going or, you know, flowing and going as much as I can because there was definitely some turbulent smoke coming out of the door. Uh, Most of the fire was on uh, the uh, Bravo Charlie corner of the house 
So usually would, would look to be a back bedroom. So we're kind of fighting our way back in there. And as I'm going, as I occupy space, they peel off and search a section. As I occupy space, they peel off and search a section as I'm flowing water into that area. And I got to the fire room long before they did because they were trying to search. And so I knocked a lot of the fire down and I started searching that kind of immediate area. <clears throat> and so that kind of, you know, and then, you know, you don't really think about it while you're doing it. I'm flowing water and I kind of look and I'm flowing water and I've got this space behind me that I've occupied. So I've flown enough water and the and I, I've flown enough water and the window had already failed that the smoke is starting to lift. So immediately I'm starting to search. The, the rescue company's working up toward me. Finally, some other people get there. And they kind of knock out the rest of the building. But that got me thinking. That got me thinking a lot about, man, what would we have done with just us three had we found a victim? You know, what, you know. So it, it made me start to think. So then we get another fire. This is at a different company. It's an engine company only. And we're going to the fire. And we do an unusual water supply assignment because it's the way the hydrants are laid out. And again, riding in charge of that engine. Stretch the line. We have a full complement on the engine this time, thankfully. And as we're starting to make the stretch into the into the fire building, and again, we've got fire coming from the eaves. It looks like it's an attic fire. It really was a fire uh, that had just kind of gotten into the attic space because uh, the kitchen ceiling had failed. It was a kitchen was pretty much involved, but most of the bedrooms and everything we just had smoke damage, living room smoke damage. You know, smoke kind of banked down about your waist. Go into the kitchen. And as we're starting to make that stretch, you hear over the radio that the first due ladder company had lost power and broken down on the side of the road. So now we're not we're waiting for that second due special service coming from a pretty significant distance away <clears throat> to show up and initiate search because that's their job. They're search and rescue. Um, and you know, and again too, we were kind of running away from help. Uh, it was a day where we were doing a lot of training in the district, so some companies were out of place. So we were op- we had the opportunity to operate on this fire for a while by ourselves. So what we ended up doing was the nozzle guy stretched the line. I got the line in place. I hear that the truck company's not coming. Again, car- two cars in the driveway. Neighbors like the guy just got home, so we don't know where he is. He's not standing out in the front yard, so we're in a rescue mode situation. We stretch the line onto the kitchen. I peel off as he's flowing water. I peel off and start searching the immediate area and start kind of searching some high traffic areas. Finally, some other companies get there and we assign them to to finish doing a primary search. Uh, I kind of link up with them. But that those two calls really, really got me thinking about what I need to do in case that I have to search as an engine company because it's been ingrained and I sure I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone, right? I'm sure that other people, other people out there listening to this podcast have have had that drilled into their head that engine companies put fires out. And especially in the big urban companies where you're right on top of each other and you know you do your roles and you assign the right resource to the right task. All of those things, you have predetermined roles and, and we do too. We have predetermined uh, roles of what we're supposed to do. And that works great when everyone shows up. But there's a ton of fire departments out there that are running with two people, don't even have a truck company. So what is their plan for searching buildings? So I started kind of racking my brain and really started training 
the people that work in my companies on what to do when that ladder truck doesn't show up, like how we're going to initiate an engine company search. So before we get into that, though, a little bit more background. If you haven't gone to firefighterrescuesurvey.com, you need to you need to do it. You need to look at the information that's on that website. You need to look at that page, and you need to to really analyze that information. And I'm not going to give you all the statistics from that page, but the short story is that if you make a rescue, you have the opportunity to go to that page and fill out a survey of the information that that you faced with that rescue, where the victim was, how you got them out, uh, you know where you know where they were, were they laying on the floor, were they laying on the bed, all of those things, what conditions were in, what smoke conditions were, all of those things, and that helps firefighters. It's helped me. And it's given me valuable information on how I'm going to train these firefighters and how I operate when I have when I'm faced with a search and rescue situation. And especially has given me information on what I'm gonna do when I'm having to multitask and do fire suppression and search and rescue. And I'm t- and I know that that's a situation that. I've gotten put into more and more lately, and it's a situation that I know there are other fire departments out there that are facing the same thing. So firefighterrescuesurvey.com. As of this recording, there are 989 surveys that have been submitted. So the percentages I'm getting ready to tell you are based on these 989 surveys. That's not every rescue in the country, okay? That's not every rescue in the country, but... It does give us some a good cross section, and it does give us a really good place to start. And so, out of those nine hundred and eighty nine surveys, forty four point five percent victims were located in the bedroom, and ten point four percent of victims were located in the hallways. And those are the largest. <clears throat> if you look at the graph or the pie chart, those are the largest slices. Of the pie, those two pieces make up over fifty percent of the victim locations. So, if you're training to search and you don't know where the victims are, like you have no idea, like you get there or, or you're doing training uh, and you want to make a realistic scenario, then I would put the victims in the bedroom in the hallways. If you're on the fire ground. And you have no victim location, uh, you have no known victim location, and, and you, no one to tell you, yeah, I think they were in here, <clears throat> I think they were in there, so on and so forth. You have no idea where the person is, but they say that they're in there. Uh, over 50% of the time, based on these surveys, they're being found in bedrooms and in hallways. So that's a pretty good place to start. The On top of that is, who's normally the first person in the hallway? The engine company. And in most houses, especially like a ranch house, the hallways lead to the bedrooms. So the engine company stretches a line down a hallway and hits a bedroom. They are in the portal that leads to most victim locations. Now, of course, there's oddball stuff everywhere, but I mean, this is a great place to start. It's a great place to bullseye our search. Because if we don't find them there, then every, then everything else is kind of like, okay, 
we didn't find them in the most high probability place, now we can we can expand our search elsewhere. So I really think that that's great, great information. Here's some other information for you. Based Again, based on these 989 surveys, 26.3% of victims were found by fire attack. 26.3%. That's a lot. That is a lot. And so if you're finding victims on fire attack and you haven't trained on what to do or you don't have a procedure, it's not going to go smoothly. And I'm going to go over a procedure later. I'm not saying my procedure is the best. In fact, I hope that when you listen to it, you take it and you make it work for you. And you email me or to, or send me something if you think that you can make it better. Because that's what this is about. This is about sharing information about learning. But 26.3% of victims have been found by fire attack. That's a large number of victims. 59.7% of victims were found by the primary search. Which I think that's great. That's great that we're finding people that need to be found on primary search. That's great that we're finding people. But primary search does miss people. Primary search does miss people. There was a fire in Fairfax a couple weeks ago where the primary search missed a victim no, for no fault of their own. The conditions were extremely hazardous to them. They were running low on air. They just didn't find him. And he was found on the secondary search. But, you know, but it happens, right? So no fault of our own that sometimes we miss victims on primary search. But... That says a lot right there. Those two statistics, if we are, if fire attack is looking for victims and expecting victims and practicing on how to get them out and find them while we're stretching the line and primary search is also doing their job, it says to me that we're going to find almost 100% of the people in these buildings. So that's where our focus needs to be on search and rescue. Good primary searches and fire attack needs to be searching as they're stretching. Or the procedure that I'm going to tell you later on. So that right there, again, firefighterrescuesurvey.com. Those are some of the, there's a whole lot of other statistics on there that'll give you some more information on what you can do to help bullseye your search techniques from the company level. But those right there, to me, are some of the most important. And I know that's something that, again, Based on those incidents that I told you about and based on this information, it is how I have started to train people and how I've started to think as an engine company officer. And, and again, it, it has changed the way that I look at some of these procedures. So we've talked a lot about the background of like why engine company search. We talked some statistics. Uh, we talked... Some, you know, we talked a lot of statistics on firefighterrescuesurvey.com. We've talked a lot about, you know, why we need to do this. But here's the thing that we often do, especially in these podcasts or in these articles, we tell you, or even in some of these motivational speeches, right? We tell you, you know, one of my favorite, uh, you know, articles, I think Dave LeBlanc uh, writes this, um, he would always t talk about, he wrote this article called Why We Search. And it was basically like anytime there was like a vacant house fire, he's big on search every building. And, and you, you know, I, I'm kind of on that wavelength myself. Um, I do think that there's ways that we can 
there's ways that we need to approach certain structures. Uh, it's not always a sprint first, ask questions later game. Um, I do believe we're running on the fire ground, but when it comes to vacant occupancies, I've had some clo- a close call on a vacant occupancy, and I'm glad we didn't run in before we did a little bit more size up on it. I'm not saying there won't be victims in there. I'm saying that we have to treat them a little bit different than we do when we know a... Uh, or when a structure appears to be well-kept and well-maintained. Um, not saying it can't happen in a well-maintained structure. It just, for me, in my experience, uh, again, having a close call on a vacant structure has made me a little more cautious when I see the boarded-up windows, boarded-up doors. I don't think that's a situation where we need to sprint into. Um, I know seconds count, but if, if I fall through the floor because there is no floor, then I didn't save anybody. Now I'm part of the problem. So we can have that debate on another day, but there was an article that he used to write, and I think he still does, and I think some other people have started to contribute to this too, uh, why we search. And I, and I think that's great, and I think it's important to highlight all of those things. However, no one ever wrote an article called How We Search. No one ever wrote an article on how we search, at least you know, not that I've ever read, and, and, I, and I feel like I'm pretty well read, especially on fire service periodicals and blogs. There's some classes out there, uh, but not everybody has a chance to go to FDIC. Uh, I took a great class on search and rescue from a guy named Grant Schwalbe, who really, uh, again, helped me start to focus in on what I want to focus on when it comes to search and rescue from my perspective. But uh, not everybody can go to FDIC, uh, and not everybody can travel to go meet the guy. So if he doesn't come to your to your town, you're missing out. Uh, so, you know, again, we need to focus on the the how and the why. Uh, and that's what this is all about. And again, for a little bit of background, I run on an engine company with three people. The station I'm at now, we're a rural water area. I have a tanker that I'm responsible for. And for better or for worse, I'm not a big fan of it. I, I Some people call transitional attack fractional firefighting. Um, the way that we do tanker operations is the third person drops off the engine, takes the tanker to the scene behind the engine. They pull, we pull them as close as we can together, and then the engine driver pumps them both while the firefighter and the officer stretch lines into the building, do what they have to do. I think that's fractional firefighting. Uh, it's not the best practice, but it's what we do, so we train with what we do. So in that instance... With having some delayed response, the tanker's not as fast as the engine, and God bless it shouldn't be because it's one of the most dangerous apparatus in the fire service. Um, we have that tanker coming, and I'm in that rural area. It's even if the truck company can get there quick, a lot of times they can't get all the way up to the house, so they have to get out and they have to hump down the driveway. So they're delayed getting there to initiate that search. So we have to initiate that search from an engine company perspective, at least in the pathway to the fire, to the seat of the fire. Because that's still our main job as an engine company, to put water on the seat of the fire as fast as possible. But we have to add in that searching component and victim rescue component. So again, like I said, I ride on an engine with three people. Every suppression piece in the fire department that I work for has three people on it. Um, so let's talk about how we get ready for that engine company search. And let's talk about that procedure. First things first, and this is with anything you're trying to do, anything, 
you're trying to do in the fire service. I don't care if it's ventilation, forcible entry, uh, you know, anything that you're trying to do, stretching hose lines, whatever, you have to make it realistic. You have to do it for your buildings, your crew size, your run assignments, your command teams, your fire department. You can get ideas from other places. And I encourage getting ideas from other places. I've talked about this a million times on the podcast. Go read Fire Engineering, Firehouse, all the blogs. Go to conferences and then take all that stuff that you get back. Take all that stuff that you get back and practice it with your people. If you don't do that, then you're setting yourself up for failure because you may not be able to do what that other fire department is doing with your sized fire department or your crew. It It just can't happen. Okay, you cannot, uh, John Norman said it when I went and took the uh, County Fire Tactics Officer Development Program. He stood up in front of, I think it was 200 people there, 200 fire officers and firefighters in the room. And even more people just kind of coming in that were on duty, like in Escambia County and, and, and all that kind of stuff, sitting in there. And he said it on the stage over the microphone. If you are trying to fight fire like FDNY with, without FDNY staffing, I, you're not only stupid, when you kill somebody, I will come testify against you. That was extremely impactful for me. And again, I'm a huge fan of the FDNY. Come look at my videos. I've got FDNY fire videos. I listen to them on Broadcastify. I, I watch their YouTube videos. I emulate a lot of the things because... They are a huge fire department. I do the same thing with D.C., Buffalo, Detroit. I want to see what those guys are doing. I'm into the job. I want to know. But I can't do some of the things that they do, so I don't try. Or I take some of the things they do and I modify them to fit my needs. That's what you have to do. Be your own authentic fire department. Make your, you know... And if you come up with something that you've never heard of or you haven't seen, by God, tell somebody. Write a blog, do a podcast, submit an article. That's what we should be doing. You know, because there's probably somebody else out there, even if it's one other fire department, that is like, oh man, they're a lot like us. We could use this. I know that happens to me all the time. I see this, I'm like, man, they are exactly like our fire department. We can take this and we can see if it works for us. So the first things first when you're talking about engine company search or any other fire ground topic, realistic training, realistic training, your fire department. If it can't work for your fire department, then it doesn't work. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it doesn't work for you and you need to move on. Second thing, and this again, it's training, but we have got to focus on the stretch. The stretch and the hose advance. It doesn't matter how much search and training we do. It doesn't matter any of that. If we can't get the hose line from the engine company to the door quickly, efficiently, we can't get in the house, flow water, get to the seat of the fire, then it doesn't matter. We can be ready to search and look for victims all day. None of it matters. If we can't do that right, 
if we cannot get that hose line to the seat of the fire, off the fire truck and to the seat of the fire, then it does not matter what we do. We can be the best engine, we can be the best searchers all the, all we want. If we don't get that fire out, then it's just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. The victims are going to be in more and more peril, and we're never going to get them there. So focus, I, I, again, I said this at the beginning of the podcast, you can't stretch and flow water enough. Even when you think you've got it, you don't got it, okay? Even when you think you've got it, you don't got it. I'm telling you, flow water, stretch hose, challenge yourself, challenge yourself. How easy is it for your engine company to get up a flight of stairs? You would think it's simple, but how easy is it for you guys to get up a flight of stairs? I know a technique that I use is the bear crawl to do that. If you, it, it's it's on a blog, it's on the the Average Jake Firefighter blog. If you want to take a look at it, just type in the search bar "bear crawl." You'll see what I'm talking about. There's also a YouTube video on it uh, that I did on the Average Jake uh, on the Average Jake page. Just type in "Average Jake Firefighter Bear Crawl" in the search bar, and you can find it. But that's something that we use, or I use, to get hose lines upstairs because I know that on a two-story house, most of the bedrooms are on the second floor, and I, and based on the statistics that I know, that I, that I talked about, when we're finding people in bedrooms and hallways, well, by God, on a second-story house, there's a hallway up there that leads to most of the bedrooms. At least I know in my house, you come up to the top of the stairs, bedroom on the right, bedroom at the end of the hall, and two bedrooms in the middle. So. You know, we got a lot of, we got four bedrooms in this house, all connected to one hallway. Man, that's going to get me over 50%. But if I can't get the hose line up here, then it doesn't even matter. So stretch, 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 flow water, get into these buildings and you know, go set your burn building up to where, all right, this is going to simulate an apartment. This is going to simulate a ranch house. This is going to simulate just a two-story house. This is going to be a Cape Cod. Okay. All those things. And that leads into occupancy type matters. There are certain occupancy type features that can help you if you're out there looking at them. I know in where I work, we have a lot of tri-levels and split levels. Tri-level, where you walk in the front door and you walk onto an actual floor, it's usually the living room. And then to your right or to your left, depending on which which side of the, of the uh, house it is, there's a there's like a little split stair that goes up, usually to the bedrooms, and down, usually to like a basement or kind of a den type area where the utilities are, and the kitchens in the and the kitchens in the back of that first level that you came into. We call that a tri level because there actually is three levels. You come in on a floor, you go up to a floor, and down to a floor, and then we have split levels. There you walk in the front door, and you're met with a set of stairs. You can either go up or down. Um, those can be difficult to navigate, but there are things that can help. If you have a fire on the lowest level of one of those, maybe going around back can get you to the seat of the fire a lot faster. And then the truck company can go in the front door and search. Or once you've got the fire under control, you're, you're controlling the stairs, all of those things. You can beat feet up the stairs to search those other areas. Okay, so you can use those construction features to help you and to put water on the fire faster. But you won't know that if you're not out there in them. And one of the things that we, and, and everybody says it, and I'm going to reiterate it, we go on a lot of EMS calls and we're so quick to get out of there. 
we're so quick, like, oh my God, thank God this EMS call is over so we can go out and we can get back. You know, it, it, it drives me crazy because these people are inviting us into their house. Take a look around. Obviously not at the adverse, uh, adverse reaction to patient care. We want to make sure that the patient's taken care of, but take a look around before you leave. Even if you can't go back in the house, okay, put the patient in the back of the ambulance, the engine's parked out front, stop for 10 minutes. Go, okay, if this house was on fire, where would we, if, the, if this bedroom up here was on fire, where would we stretch the line? Okay, boom, stretch the line. All right, we would stretch the line here. Okay, hey, how far is it from the rig to the door? How deep's this house? Hey, let's walk around the house real quick. Oh, hey, look, there's a porch roof back here. It'd be a really good spot to launch a VES. Or, hey, look, there's a sliding glass door back here that goes into the basement. Maybe we could use that. Learn the buildings in your area, and that can help you. And that will also help you if you're, look, if you're looking around these EMS calls. It can show you, hey, you know, 90% of the people in this neighborhood, they use this little bonus room over the garage as a bedroom. They don't use it as like a, as a bonus room or whatever. They use it as an actual legit bedroom. So we need to know about that. We need to be, we need to bullseye our search there because bedrooms, we talked about that in the statistics area, bedrooms are where a lot of victims are being found. So if I don't know that they're using it as a bedroom, I may not even think about it. So again, occupancy type matters. Okay, occupancy type matters. So again, realistic training, stretching hose lines and occupancy type. You've got to make sure that we're focused on those things because our job is still to put water on the fire. We're just expanding our job a little bit to make sure that we're on the lookout for victims. So let's talk about the procedure. And this lays out from soup to nuts what I think that that company officer should be doing and that crew should be doing and how this is laid out. Again, this is the what I think this is what I practice, and this is based on my fire service experience, my fire service training, and the, the fires that I go to. If you want to use this, make sure that you're analyzing it and putting your fire department in its place because that is the only way that it's going to be successful. So I've got two procedures, one for an interior fire attack and one for a transitional fire attack. I know that's a dirty word in the fire service, but... Uh, you know, whatever you call hitting the fire from the outside before you go in. That's what I call a transitional fire attack. Whatever you call it in your world, that's, it, that doesn't matter to me. So first, and, and just, and by the way, you know, this is not an ideal situation. Before I get into the interior fire attack procedure, this is not ideal, okay? Um, fire departments all over the country are faced with the choice of either searching or fire suppression. We, we run into this every day when we show up to fires, especially if you don't have a truck company or another company behind. To me, that's a fool's choice because just putting the fire out, yes, putting the fire out makes everything better. You'll never convince me that that's not the case, right? Like, I don't care. Uh, you know, you'll never, I've never been in a fire where water was getting put on the fire and stuff started going bad. Like, it just didn't happen. Um, and, and maybe that's, I've been lucky, but you know, water on the fire is what we need, but that doesn't remove the victims from the building period. Okay. Water on the fire is a really good step to making that removal easier, but water on the fire alone does not locate, does not remove that victim. So we have to do both. And if you don't have people to do both at the same time, you have to do both. So you have to come up with a way 
that you can do that. And so here's the way um, that I do this. And this is basic, This is for a basic, again, too, occupancy type matters, right? This is for a basic rancher on fire, okay? Um, if you're interested in some of the other things that I suggest for other occupancy types, averagejakefirefighter.com, and you can put in engine company search, and I have a, lo- a, a couple other different occupancy types that we talk about, townhomes, split-level house, tri-level house, two-story homes, uh, uh, all of those things that you can read. But uh, first thing, for a ranch house, interior fire tech, because this is the most basic structure that we usually have in the, Ameri- in the American fire service. Interior fire stack. While responding, the first in officer should relay the water supply plan to the other companies. To me, that's critical. Uh, again, coming from a fire department where I, we only ride with three people, I have to be a working supervisor. Uh, one of my mentors says that everyone's got to be a soldier on a three-person engine company, and I agree. We can't have sidewalk commanders. Can't have guys out there hugging the radio and wearing ICS vests when it's time to do work on a three-person engine company. You just can't do it. So I want to get as much radio traffic on the front end as I can, so that way, when I'm working, I don't have to keep calling on the radio, calling the radio, do all the- I can give them what I want them to do and have them do it before I have to start doing all the work. Because once I'm pulling hose, I may not even be able to hear them because my heart rate's so fast. So again, while responding, that first an engine company officer is going to relay the water supply plan to the, other, to the other responding companies. Let them know what you want them to do and then let them do it. If you want, you can, you can pre-establish what, the, what things those happen. And we usually do that as well. Uh, we have these predetermined things, but usually that engine company officer says, engine engine 14 to engine 6, I'm laying out from the hydrant at Early Street. Pump to us. That tells, that tells them what to do. Upon arrival, that initial officer gives that on-scene report. Uh, again, you know, the, the single story, single family, smoke and fire showing from side A, and establishes command. The nozzle firefighter deploys the attack line. Pretty simple. That's usually for us the backwards firefighter. While the firefighter's stretching the line and and you know getting the line charged, getting the kinks out, testing the line, the company officer's doing the 360. As you guys know, you've you've listened to the if you've ever listened to the podcast, if you haven't, go back and listen to the episode where I talk about the 360 and its importance. I'm a big believer in doing the 360, even in a low manpower situation. It helps me make the right decision the first time. I don't have 25 engine companies and 50 people coming to the fires that I go to. I've got to make the right decision the first time. And what helps me is getting that additional piece of information of seeing the whole picture. Um, that also, it allows you to do all those things I talked about in that three in that 360 episode. I can look at flashover potential, possible victim locations. I have found victims in the backyard, people that have jumped out of windows or people that, that escaped out of the back door but had been overcome by smoke. So if you don't do the 360, you may be missing some people. So do the 360. Look for those four Bs. If you don't know what the four Bs of the 360 are, go back and listen to the podcast about it or there's an article on averagejakefirefighter.com about it. Uh, all of those things. Once the 360 is done, the nozzle firefighter and the officer advance the charged hose line to the seat of the fire. Here's where we start talking about how we're going to search it. So we've we've 
stretch that hose line, officer firefighter, officer running back and forth, grabbing couplings, moving lines, getting that hose line to the seat of the fire. Once water's being flowed on the seat of the fire, and you can ensure that as the company officer, the nozzle's flowing, you've crawled back up to the nozzle man, you've talked to him, you've talked to him, you're seeing that the smoke is starting to change, the dark it now, we're going to start searching. That officer, that guy's going to flow water into that fire room and provide you protection as you go back down the hose line and start searching. If there's bedrooms off to the side, you can, if you have a, a rope or something, you can use a piece of rope attached to the hose line, jump into the building, come back. If not, use your tool. Hook the tool to the hose line, open the door, sweep in as far as you can. Or use your thermal imaging camera. Hopefully you're carrying a thermal imaging camera. Use that thermal imaging camera. Sweep the room. Use all the tools at your advantage. I carry 50 foot of rope with me, so I would hook that rope uh, to the hose line and I would use that as my orientation point. I would use that as my orientation point to get in there, search that room really quick, come back out. But you can start working your way back down. Hopefully, by that time, you'll be able to hit some high traffic areas, the rooms next to the fire, those are really, really big high traffic areas for possible victim locations and a hallway or thoroughfare from door to fire room. That's, again, going to be a high traffic area for possible victims. Hopefully, by that time, you've been able to either accomplish that or someone's there to help you and can pick up the rest of the building. But that's how we're going to start to bullseye our search. We're taking that information, and I'm going to work back from the fire room to try and search, search these places. If I find a victim in any of these locations. If I find a victim, if we find a victim, uh, you know, on the way in, I think it's pretty simple. We're going to, you know, if the house burns down, but we save all the people, does it really matter? No, not in my opinion. So if we're close to the door, we're close to that exit, go ahead, grab that person, get them out. If the, if the nozzle guy can, if you can get the victim out by yourself, awesome. If not, you and the nozzle firefighter grab them, pull them out, go back in after you pull them out. If, uh, you know, if, if not, um, if you can't, you know, if, if you can't move them, do it together. If, if you can do it by yourself, pull them out, have that nozzle firefighter continue down to the seat of the fire. If you're finding someone in one of those adjacent rooms, like we're, we've stretched the line to the seat of the fire, we're flowing water, and we start to, you start to search back and you find somebody, you can do one of two things. Make contact with that nozzle firefighter. If he's still having to flow water in that fire room, then, then let him stay there. What you should then work on is isolating yourself from the smoke and fire, doing kind of a reverse VES. If you're in a bedroom, close the door, break the window, make the environment better. It's okay to break that window because we know, again, we're coordinating vent with that fire attack, we've already flown water on the fire. So our chances of the environment getting worse are greatly reduced, if not almost impossible. Um, break that window, get the environment better. If you can get them out the window, great. If not, isolate yourself, call for help, get someone to come help you. If the, fi if the nozzle firefighter has knocked that fire down enough to where he feels confident that he can leave that fire room, have him take the nozzle, back down to your location. Again, we have the nozzle in hand. We're still protected if fire comes back out the room. We've got all those things. And then you guys can work on removal either out of the building, keeping that nozzle with you, or using that same technique, we're going to 
We're going to use that nozzle. We're going to open, we're going to use that bedroom that we're in, use that nozzle for protection. In fact, we can work the hose back in so the nozzle's pointed out into the hallway, break the window, get them out. Or if the fire's knocked down to the point where we can get, we take that nozzle, we can just back them all the way back out that front door. Okay. It's, it's, it's simple procedure. Simple tends to work in stressful situations. For a transitional attack, it's kind of the same way, right? Once we find the victim or if we, if we find the victim, how we search is the same thing. The only thing that we're doing is starting from the outside. While that company officer is doing that 360, that nozzle firefighter has located that fire room, uh, usually because fire or smoke is venting out of that room, and he's going to try to make an impact on that environment before we go in. He flows water into the fire room. Company officer's done with the 360. Once he's done with the 360, the nozzle shut off. They both advance into the house and to the seat of that fire. Then the procedure is the exact same. Water's flowing on the seat of the fire from the inside. The company officer starts to search back. Hopefully, the impacts of that transitional attack will have made that environment better. So if there are victims on the way to the fire room, we can see them a whole lot better. And the stretch is and the advancement of the hose is a whole lot easier and instead of having to stretch in zero vis or even having to flow and go. So that's where and then after we get to that fire room, then the procedure's the same. We're gonna start and make our search back. We're gonna make our search back. Now obviously, like I said, occupancy type matters, right? So None of this, this is for a ranch house. Things change a little bit based on the occupancy type. If you have stairs, if you have if you have stairs in the equation, if it's a split level, tri-level, if it's a Cape Cod, um, you know, because the stair configurations can be different. The front door can block the stairs. There's all sorts of different factors around that can that can impact this. The important thing is, is that when you're stretching that line. We are expecting to find victims and we're actually thinking about them. And we have a procedure to search and to get them out if we don't have any help. Or we at least have a a procedure to protect them if we don't have any additional help until additional help arrives. So that's the whole procedure. And again, that's an interior exterior because, you know, and I don't really talk about doing any kind of defensive or whatever, because most of the time, if we're doing a defensive operation, uh, that search is going to be a secondary search, not usually a high-risk primary search, and so it's going to be more methodical anyway, um, and we really don't, and we really won't be in a in that IDLH environment more than likely. It'll be more of like a structural IDLH environment than a smoke and fire IDLH environment, um, but again, so that's engine company search in a nutshell. Uh, we could talk about this a, a lot longer than the the podcast is. Um, if you're interested, I have submitted this uh, class, a proposal rather, for different conferences, hoping to hear back from Firehouse Expo pretty soon on if they accepted it or not. But I'm willing to come do lecture and hands-on engine company search classes. Um, I've got a great team that can come do this. They're all guys from my fire department and, uh, and from the city of Richmond. They, uh, they're passionate about this topic as well, and we can make that happen. So if you're interested, or if you don't want us to come out, take this information, get on AverageJakeFirefighter.com, or I also put some on Fire Engineering's uh, training site, 
uh, their little blog site that they do, the training community. Um, they're on there as well. So take a look at them and, and print them off and train with them. Okay. If you don't want me to come out and teach it to you, that's fine. I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, listen to the podcast, print those things off and, and train yourself and train your firefighters to search for victims from an engine company perspective in the, in the buildings that you have in your fire department. I think it's an important thing to do. And again, uh, go to firefighterrescuesurvey.com, learn how to bullseye your search. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that we are doing the best things that we can do every time out. And that takes research, that takes practice, and that does take a little bit of failure. Sometimes we have to fail to get better. I talked about wrestling at the beginning of the podcast. My kids always wrestle better after a loss than they do after a win because in a loss, they learn. And I've always been the same way. After I've done something wrong or failed on an incident, I'm never happy about it, but I've always done better the next time. So go out there, try these techniques, or create your own techniques that are going to work for your fire department. And let's make sure that we're using these statistics, these procedures, and getting out there so that we give people the best chance that they have for survival. We are their only option. There's no other fire department to call in your community. You're it. So give them the best chance that they have. And we're not going to save them all. We're not going to save them all. I have not pulled one alive person out of a fire yet in my career. I've had my hands on some people and we've pulled them out of the building, but they've never lived. But that doesn't mean we didn't give them their best option. And we didn't and it doesn't mean we didn't give them their best chance. So we are their only chance. And even if it's at the 1% chance, we need to give them that whole 1%. Now, so stay with us. I'm going to talk about a little bit of companies that support me right after this. Hey guys, thanks for hanging out to the end of the podcast. Uh, Again, tremendous, tremendous topic with engine company search. Something I'm really, really have started to focus on. Um, And to be honest, something I probably should have focused on from Jump Street because I've never been in a super huge fire department and I've never had the luxury of riding with five, six, seven guys and slept on a meeting night at the volunteer firehouse. Um, usually it was three, maybe four people, if that. So, but just, uh, you know, tremendously important topic, I think, for a majority of the fire service uh, because the majority of the fire service is in a suburban or rural area with minimum staffing, two to three people on an engine company, and maybe, maybe no, maybe or maybe not a truck company or special service company. Uh, so I think it's a tremendously important topic for us to discuss and for us to train on uh, consistently. 
Um, I couldn't do what I do without the support of some great, great companies. Uh, the first being Vanguard Safety Wear. Vanguard Safety Wear is the makers of the MK1 Fire Glove. They also have the Squad 1 Fire Glove, uh, actually Rescue Glove, Extrication Glove. So, man, go to uh, VanguardSafetyWear.com or DingusFire.com and get you a set of MK1 Fire Gloves. They're awesome. They're made for work. I wear them every day. The other company, Taylor's Tins. Taylor, uh, Taylor's Tins is a, a helmet front company. They make metal helmet fronts for your helmet. Those things will last you forever. I have one on my helmet. It has gone through fires. It's gone through live burns. It's gone through extrications. It's gone through rainstorms, thunderstorms, hot days, cold days. That thing looks brand new. Brand new. It's a tremendous product. He does great work. It's not some point-and-click drop-down menu like you get with a lot of other shield makers. He's gonna, you're gonna tell him what you want. He's gonna send you some concept art, and you're gonna make sure, and you're going to uh, get the helmet front that you want, and it's gonna last you forever. Stop burning up leathers. Start wearing Taylor's Tins. Go to taylorstins.com. Uh, another great company, Jeff Dykes from over at Northern Star Fire. Uh, Northern Star Fire, he is the maker of the Northern Star Fire Compass. Uh, I've been using it in my mask a little bit. It is a compass to orient you to cardinal directions while you're inside a fire building. Uh, if you have any questions about that, you can go to northernstarfire.com, look at their YouTube videos, read the literature, or you can listen to the episode that I did with Jeff where he talks about the importance of cardinal direction in your mask and on the fire ground. He's hoping that this product will make firefighters safer on the fire ground. So go to northernstarfire.com, check it out, and tell them Average Jake sent you. Uh, and lastly, just thanks for everybody who continues to listen to this podcast, who emails me and tells them that they like what I'm talking about, who you know just reaches out. That's the whole reason to do this. As I said when I first started, I wanted to provide a voice that maybe wasn't being heard in this space, in the fire service podcast world, or even just in the fire service speaking circuit. Uh, you know, it's humbling anytime that somebody reaches out. Uh, so thanks for everybody who does that. And like I say at the end of every podcast, make sure you're spending one hour doing some in the gym, working on your physical fitness. Spend one hour in the library reading something about the fire service, studying some, read an article, watch a YouTube video, uh, you know, listen to a webinar, something, something to work on your education. And spend one hour doing some sort of hands-on training, getting out there, putting your hands on the tools that we need to use every day. If you do that, you'll become a pretty phenomenal firefighter. I guarantee it. And it doesn't take very long. Like I talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, we only have a finite amount of time on this planet. And every day that you get out of bed does matter. The day that it matters may be down the road. But the preparation that's right in front of you is what's going to make the difference when that house fire hits and you're prepared. So three hours a day, make sure you're doing it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for following me. 
on Twitter at AverageJakeFF, on Instagram at AverageJakeFirefighter or at AverageJakeFF. Thanks for looking at the blog, AverageJakeFirefighter.com. And thanks for just being part of this great, great journey that I'm on. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, but aggressive.